From Selma, Alabama, would you please welcome storyteller Miss Catherine Tucker Windham. I can't believe I'm 92, and but I am. And uh, my father said to me, but he says, said when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening, and it's a rare thing these days. Listening, listening to the human voice, listening to one person talking to another person, listening. We have forgotten how to listen, how to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My dad said, listen, God gave you two ears and one mouth, and he expected you to use them in that proportion. <laughs> and the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning. And laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh. Laugh at ourselves. Laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he says. But we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said. You laugh with people. And you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving. Loving. Said God put us here to love each other, to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, and now is the time to do it. Tell stories and tell each one with love ending with, I love you. I love you. Thank you. Thanks to Catherine Tucker Windham speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at 92 years old about the importance of stories. I'm Amy Antonucci, here to welcome you to True Tales Radio, coming to you live from WSCA's West End Studio, 909 Islington Street, Portsmouth. True Tales Radio is a place for local people to share their true stories with our on-air listeners and our in-studio, newly back, audience, and to come and be a part of this local independent community radio station here in the seacoast of New Hampshire. We have five storytellers tonight on the theme of balancing acts and managing roles. We also welcome back tonight an actual in-studio audience. Welcome back, folks. Something we have very much been missing for the past three shows because we've been in the studio makeover renovation craze. It isn't finished, those of, the, of us who are here can attest to, but it is well on its way and completed enough that we can start opening our doors for the public again. So our underwriters for tonight's program are Jan Hansen, who believes in the unique value of having an independent community radio station here in the Seacoast, and Pat Spaulding, who believes in stories for grown-ups on True Tales Radio and is curious to know, hey, what's your story? So here's how the show will go tonight. You'll hear five storytellers, all local folks, bringing us true stories from their lives. Everyone gets up to 10 minutes for their telling. We don't have a rating system. There's no voting, no judgment or grading. This is really plain storytelling. 
We want everyone in our Seacoast community and beyond to have the opportunity to come in and share their stories. I'm now going to pass the mic on to our MC for tonight and every night that we do this, not every single night, Pat Spaulding, to introduce each storyteller. Come on up, Pat. Good evening, everybody. Good to see everybody here. We've got John Dover as our first storyteller. He worked for 38 years as a high school guidance counselor before finally retiring to live with his wife and son in Northampton, New Hampshire. He spent his early years on Long Island, adolescent years in Summit, New Jersey, went to college at Colgate University, moved to Philadelphia, then earned his master's degree from the University of Utah. John gets around. Tonight's story takes place somewhere in the summer of the early 1980s, at, or sometime rather, at his parents' remote cabin in the Adirondack Mountains where, according to the title of this story, there was too much drinking slash too little honesty. Thank you, Pat. It's uh, 1984, um, I'm 35 years old. I've arranged a get-together for, for um, some college friends of mine. Um, so it's going to include my family, which consists of uh, my wife and our three children aged a year and a half to um, almost eight. And it's also going to include one of my sisters uh, with her family. Her husband was my best friend from college, so he's my brother-in-law now, but he started out being my best friend in college. And their three children, who are really about the same ages as ours, um, coincidentally, and they've been together lots of times, so they're good friends. And then a couple of friends, uh, other friends from college that are going to join us. So it seemed like a perfect opportunity to get away and just enjoy each other. And I think we did, initially. Um, I don't remember anything really special happening until I'm sitting on the couch in the living room reading to uh, my kids, and I think some of my sister's kids were there with me, and this is something that I love to do, to, to read to, to kids. And I hear from the other room um, talk about Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was president during that time period, and I hated him. And I, so I immediately start kind of bristling inside. And I don't know if you're around them, but if you were, you'll remember the question, are you better off now than you were four years ago? And I especially bristle at this because I'm thinking, why do we have to compare with things economically to determine whether our lives are going better or worse? Why can't we focus on care of elderly or our animal population or how are we doing in terms of sexism, homophobia, and, uh, you know, just um, balance in society. But I don't say any of that, even though I'm a guidance counselor and my role, as I have seen it, is to try to teach kids to find their voices so that they can communicate better to each other and to the teachers that they work with and to their families and so on. 
because I think that's really critical to learning how to be a better person is to find your voice and learn how to speak in a way that is going to help you. But I don't do that, even though I'm a guidance counselor. I'm aware of this, or not aware of it, but um, I'm aware of it now. And what I do do, shamefully, is start to read the story louder and louder to the kids so that I can drown out the accolades for Ronald Reagan. <laughs> and I think I even remember one of my sister's kids saying, does your dad usually talk that loud? <laughs> um, and I, so, I mean, my nose is kind of bent out of joint. I know this is stupid, but that's the way it was. I was, I was annoyed. And cut to the evening. Um, we've got, I think most of the kids, the older kids anyway, have gone to sleep. We're playing Trivial Pursuit, which I love. And um, we've been all drinking. I mean, I didn't, nobody was drunk. Um, but we were enjoying ourselves, 35-somethings. And I think my brother-in-law had had maybe a little bit more to drink than the rest of us because he was getting kind of ornery. And I didn't think too much about this except that I felt tension in the air. And um, so anyway, I took a bathroom break from the Trivial Pursuit. And... Um, I'm brushing my teeth, and all of a sudden, I hear my wife scream. And my wife can scream. And so I throw the toothbrush down, and I run out into the living room. And Harry has my wife in his two hands like this. He's not shaking or anything. He's just holding her. And I can't remember if she was still screaming or not, but I could see from her face that she was really upset. So without thinking at all, I'm describing this to you, but there was no, you know, judgment at all. I run as fast as I can at my best friend and I hit him as hard as I can with my fist in his face and I stun him and stagger him. And I'm not thinking anything at all but I had to do this. That's what's in my head. And of course, all hell breaks loose. Like there's, I don't know, fist flying and yelling and crying and bad stuff. Um, but I don't think anybody got much sleep that night. I know I didn't. Next morning, um, my two friends that were not involved in the violence want to go fishing. So we go out onto this beautiful placid lake early in the morning and I'm expecting to hear them say, what a brave person you are, that you had to do that to protect your wife. And I didn't hear that from them. And in fact, what I did hear from one of them is, boy, if my wife had been here, she would not have liked that at all. And I'm thinking to myself, do you think my wife liked to see her husband get into a fist fight with his best friend? Um, but I didn't say that. All I did is just kind of listen to the fact that they weren't saying the things that I had thought that they were going to say. They caught a couple of really nice bass 
And then we um, paddled back to the cabin where people, it was very quiet. Um, there was a lot of tension in the atmosphere. And I think people just wanted to get away. I know I did. So we get into our cars, we leave, and and it, the next couple of weeks, I'm hearing from letters from my sister about what a jerk I am and how she doesn't like me and blah, blah, blah. Kind of expected it, but I still felt really justified. And even though it was really, you know, something that didn't go along with my work, which is really to try to help kids to avoid conflict and, and get their voices uh, so that they can speak the truth without bringing on violence. I didn't do that at all. And so it took me years and years and years to realize that I wasn't doing anything that was helping the situation. What I was doing is maybe getting a little bit even with my brother-in-law for some reason that I don't even really know, but I'm sure I was angry with him and that that was really the instigator more than my wife's scream because I realized I could have gone out there and I could have said, Harry, you got to stop this, please. I mean, I can see you're a little bit upset here, but we need to settle down. Let's just all settle down and talk about this and see what's going on. But I didn't do that. And I didn't say anything. It was all violence. And so it's, it took me a long time to realize that I was really completely at fault. And I have apologized many times uh, to the person who is still one of my best friends. And we have kind of, you know, made it up. Um, but I want to tell you that violence... It's got a really long shelf life, and I really wish that I could take that moment back and do it differently. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that with us, John. This is Amy Antonucci back up here, because I am going to introduce to you our next storyteller, Pat Spaulding, MC of True Tales Radio. She is a writer and storyteller from Rye, New Hampshire, who tells stories for grown-ups. She's been single, married, and single again. She has toured the country as a puppeteer, and she currently enjoys her role as a majorette with a leftist marching band. While Pat has chosen the joys and pitfalls of leading a rather unconventional lifestyle, her mother's voice about the life she might have chosen still whispers in her ear. Pat's story tonight is titled, The World's Narrowest Street. Come on up, Pat. A woman's most wonderful role is to give birth to her children, to love them, raise them, and to be the best mother that she can be. This was my mother's belief, her experience, and it was her greatest wish for me as her only daughter. I was a kid when I started hearing this from my mother, and I mean, frankly, I was very good at being a kid. That was a fine role. I liked playing and being taken care of by my mother. Why would I want to switch? Then when I got into my 20s, 
you know, she kind of put the pressure on a little bit, like, well, you could get married and, you know, the babies. And I said, Ma, you know, there's plenty of time for that. We're, I'm not sure what I want to do. I'm busy doing other stuff. And then in my 30s, I was still busy doing other stuff. Ma was beginning to really panic now, but it's like, Ma, take it easy. Slow down. I was 40. I got married at 40. But instead of turning my husband into a father, I turned him into a puppeteer. We gave birth to puppet shows and puppets, and we toured the country and remained very busy doing other things. After 19 years, that marriage ended. And so I was pushing 60 by the time I was divorced. Single again. Hoorah. Thinking about those paths, in one particular, that path, not taken. When I hooked up with an old lover from the past, and um, we'd been just 20 years plus since we'd seen each other, so it took a while to catch up. We were exchanging stories, and he'd had a um, teenage son, a daughter who died in infancy. I said, no children. The conversation went on. And after a pause, he looked at me and said, you would have been a good mother. Really? You think so? That was the best foreplay line I had ever heard. <laughs> totally worked. Backtrack 10 years. I'm about to turn 50. Not in the least bit happy about it. My husband, David, at the time knew this. No party, no celebration, nothing. So he got plane tickets to get me out of the country. Good idea. We went to Belize, kind of a third world country. They were just getting tourism. And um, we went to this place called Placentia. Sounds like placentas. <laughs> a little 15 mile spit of land that uh, separates the ocean from the mainland of Belize. And the plane delivered us to some broken up tarmac and we jumped into this rattle trap vehicle with overturned milk crates for seats and were delivered to the beginning of a foot and a half wide mile long cement sidewalk on the sand which in the guidebooks was called the world's narrowest street that's because it didn't skirt along beside a street this was main street placentia shane was our cabin boy I wasn't entirely comfortable having a cabin boy. He brought us to a, our cabana, and as he opened the door, he stepped over a lethargic, flea-bitten dog who lay slumped on our front porch. She didn't move, so we stepped over her, too. The mother of all dogs, as we coined her for her resemblance to every other dog in Placentia, seemed to think of our front porch as her home, and for two weeks, that's where she lived, unless she strayed to scrounge for food, in which case her long teeth hung so low that they actually left track marks in the hot sand. I tried not to notice. You try not to notice a lot when you're vacationing in a third world country. Everybody around you is poorer than you are. There's obvious poverty. And it's hard to relax around people who are so much poorer that they couldn't possibly understand that we actually couldn't afford to be there. But I tried to relax. 
And we snorkeled and swam and we uh, kayaked and listened to the wind and the palm trees and did the usual things. And we went to uh, open air bars and listened to the musical language of the natives who bantered back and forth and sort of a Caribbean Garifuna Creole Patois. I mean, it was a Garifuna Caribbean Creole Patois. Whatever it was, they were very friendly and accommodating. Too friendly. Too accommodating. It felt to me as if they wanted something from us. I don't know, a connection to the States, money, something. So I always remained a little bit on alert, kind of hard to relax. Finally, on the day of my birthday, we joined other tourists to go for a, a guided tour in the Jaguar Reserve. And we were led down a path through the rainforest to this wonderful, beautiful lagoon cool, deep lagoon that was fed by a 30-foot drop of falls. Tourists all, we swam, we slid on mossy rocks like otters. When word got out that I was celebrating my 50th birthday, I became the target of a splash fight. Get out, you're not, go on, not a day with 30. You don't look any more than 47, really. <laughs> These were my people. I stood under that falls, lifted my face up, and accepted my baptism into the menopausal years. Finally, I went back to the cabana feeling refreshed and relaxed. Shane knocked on our door. He invited us for dinner at his house in St. Bite the next night. David, of course, automatically he said, oh yes, that will be wonderful. And I'm thinking, hmm, okay, now it comes the big ask. What does he want? We'll find out. So we pedaled our bikes to this shanty town built on stilts about 10 feet, 12 feet, these little shacks up high. Climbed some worn wooden, wooden steps into a 12 by 12 foot bare room furnished with one single chair one hard chair, and a hammock strung diagonally, corner to corner, with a small baby in the center. I was motioned to sit in the chair, and then across from me, Shane and David sat on the floor with their backs against the wall, until Alicia, Shane's beautiful wife, emerged from what looked like a closet, but it must have been a kitchen, because she came out with steaming bowls of hutu, fish chowder, and coconut dumplings and plantains. Delicious food. And while we ate, one by one, <laughs> young men ascended those steps to join David and Shane and banter back and forth in that Garifuna Caribbean Creole Patois. And they, they shone gleaming spy, smiles in my direction. I don't know what they were looking at exactly. I don't know what they were seeing. I felt like some sort of lady bountiful from America. So I smiled back politely. Alicia got up to check on new Shane, their four-month-old baby daughter. And she asked, how old are your children? We don't have children, I said. What? <laughs> she reacted as if this concept were impossible to understand. No grandchildren then? 
No. All conversation in the room stopped. I could tell that they no longer saw me as a rich American lady. The wealth in that room had shifted. How much longer are you here? Asked Alicia. Uh, we leave the day after tomorrow. Tomorrow? Oh, I have a new job starting in Placentia tomorrow. If you'd like, you can take care of Nushane for the afternoon. Would you like that? Yes, that'd be great. Yes, wonderful. Thanks. And so I signed up to babysit on my last day of vacation. <laughs> Alicia worked in this ice cream shop and the baby was delivered. She was a happy, content baby, easy care, but she was most comfortable bouncing to the rhythm of my walk. And so after three hours together, when she wouldn't go down for a nap, I picked her up and we headed to that narrow sidewalk that ran through the middle of town. She fell asleep when we were joined by one of the tourists that I'd met at the Jaguar Reserve. He asked about the baby and I said, well, once you turn 50, things happen a whole lot faster. <laughs> and we were laughing about that. When I stepped off the edge of the world's narrowest street, the fall had begun. I felt in slow motion my body just take charge. There was no deciding. Both arms pulled into my chest to hold that baby securely. My torso straightened upright, which meant that my knee would just head down and smash on the concrete, but that didn't matter. I went down. The jolt startled Nushane. She started to cry. Oh my God, said my tourist friend. Here, let me help you. He reached down to take the baby. No, no, she's fine. I wouldn't let her go. So he helped me to stand. I leaned against him, flexed my knee. It worked. I thanked him and then headed toward the cabana. And he said, hey, wait a minute. Uh, shouldn't you do something about that knee? When I looked down, there was blood streaming down my shin from a three-inch ga gash. Already small flies had started to gather. Then it started to hurt. No, I'm fine, really, we're fine. So I hobbled back to the cabana, laid the baby securely in the center of the bed, cleaned up my knee, wrapped it in a, an old t-shirt for a bandage, and we went to the ice cream shop. When Alicia saw us, she smiled, seeing us come. Then she noticed the bandage, asked me what happened. And as I gave the baby over into her mother's arms, I said, Nothing. Baby was asleep. I fell down. Nothing. We're fine. We thanked each other. On the trip back, headed back to the States in the plane, my throbbing knee reminded me of the moment I started to fall off the world's narrowest street. I stopped making decisions. I did not decide to pull that baby in close to my chest and hold her with both arms instead of holding her securely with one and reaching out with the other to break my fall. My whole body was simply there for her. My whole being given over to the welfare of the child. On Placentia, a thin strip of land that connects the ocean to the mainland of Belize, I discovered that my instinct for motherhood is intact. 
I held the baby close. I first protected the child. And though it was not my role in life, yes, I know, I would have been a good mother. Anyone got the time? My clock is gone. Oh, my God. All right. It is 7.06. You're listening to WSCALP 106.1 FM, Portsmouth Community Radio, broadcasting from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. This is True Tales Radio. I'm your announcer, Amy Antonucci. And now we'll have our next storyteller introduced Again by Pat Spaulding. Oh, yeah, nice. Here she is. Come on back, Pat. I'm not done with you. I just like got off the job. I was wandering somewhere in Belize. <laughs> All right. Michael Lang is back. He's told several stories on True Tale Radio. We enjoy every one. Michael lives in Durham, New Hampshire. He spent nearly a decade working as a wilderness guide and ropes course facilitator. But now, while managing his small business, the Coyotes Inkwell, he entertains and educates with songs and stories as a writer, musician, and storyteller. This evening, Michael will tell us about one of his other roles. The one he shares this in this story is titled, My Uncle's Cap. Uncle Mike. We need another piece. Okay, Maddie, you find the piece we need. My niece, Madison, and I are playing with her magna blocks. I'm holding three long purple triangles together in a sort of pyramid-like shape. Maddie rummages through the box of pieces, and she finds one of the small purple triangles. It has to be purple. It's her favorite color, after all. She slides into place, completing the base of our pyramid and it stands like a conical tower on the living room ottoman. In a few minutes, we've made a second one, and our two towers blast off of the ottoman and become starships as we run from one room to the next, racing neck and neck. Scotty, we need more power. We must somehow outrun this little girl. I just can't do it, Captain. I don't have the power. We race from one room to the next, all the while, her baby brother Drew is rolling on the floor, giggling and babbling to himself. And when our starships fall apart, we're laughing too. Uncle Mike, you have to fix it. Fix it, Uncle Mike. Apparently today, Uncle Mike is also a starship mechanic. We spend the afternoon going from one game to the next, one mound of toys to the next, usually cleaning up the mess in our wake, but not always. When bedtime arrives, there's a big hug and, Good night, Uncle Mike. See you in the morning. I've made her laugh today. We'll see what tomorrow brings, but I must have done something right today. Then she's off to bed to read her books and dream her dreams, and I can take off my uncle's cap for the night. I'm back to being a writer, a musician, and a storyteller. But as I spend the evening working on my stories... The words somehow seem a little bit different as I weave them together. The notes that leap off the strings of my guitar, they sound a little brighter. My niece and my nephew are two more reminders to always 
have room for imagination in my life. Always make time for play, for wonder, for creating. I've only been an uncle for about four years. Well, that's not quite true. You see, my good friend Craig and his wife Sarah, they have two little girls. The infants only met me once, but her five-year-old bigger sister, she's always called me Uncle Mike. When I go to visit them on long weekends, an afternoon of playing guitar in the living room is often interrupted by, Uncle Mike, do, do you want to play with my little ponies? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> What's this one's name? That's Rainbow Dash. She can fly. But she's a pony. Yeah, she flies really fast. <clears throat> Aurora, what's this pony's name? She rattles off the names of all the ponies, introducing me to each one. Their names spiral into a kaleidoscope of colorful adjectives, verbs, and nouns. The word princess is used an awful lot, and I'm starting to think there's a problem in Equestria. There may possibly be too much royalty and not enough peasants in the land of pony. But the implied injustice of a feudal society don't matter right now. The physics of a flying pony don't matter either, for that pony just took flight high into the sky, with a little girl chasing around, laughing all the while. When the hour grows late, there's a big hug and a, Good night, Uncle Mike. See you in the morning. I must have done something right. I made her laugh. We'll see what tomorrow brings, when I put on this uncle's cap once again. And though this story has been a little brief this evening, if by chance I've made you laugh, then chances are you know what it's like to be an uncle or an aunt, a grandparent, a mom or a dad. You know what it's like to be surrounded by a child's imagination and laughter. What it is to be filled with that creative wonder all around you. And if by chance I've made you laugh this evening, well, I must have done something right tonight. We'll see what happens tomorrow. My uncle's cap. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> Next up, we have a new storyteller. She's new to True Tales Radio. Her name is Jaden Scott Ryan. She's 14 years old. Are you? 15. Aha, okay. <laughs> yeah. In the write-up, it said soon to be 15. She's 15 years old. High school freshman who wants... Um, who wants what? Sophomore now. Oh, man. I'm turned older. <laughs> I should have updated with you before I started reading this. Anyway, I think I've got this one right. Her dad, Jim Ryan, recently told a story on True Tales Radio, and Jaden decided that she wanted to tell one, too. Her story concerns her balancing act of being an actor, a teenager, and someone living with an anxiety disorder. Its title is, I'll Be Okay. Thank you, Pat. This isn't a problem. I can get this done in literally a minute. That statement is probably one of the most false things I've said all year. It's also one of the most frequent things I've said all year. Sure, I have good intentions of balancing my schoolwork, friends, career, anxiety, and depression, but all of that is much easier said than done. My freshman year of high school was one of the most unorganized, messy, and toughest years of my life but it was also the year I learned something very important. You know that one girl in high school who's always wearing and running around like a lunatic? That was me. I was trying to balance my career, friends, anxiety, and depression, and 
It was really, really stressful, man. A typical day for me. Wake up, go back to sleep. I'm tired after all. I spent four hours on homework. Get woken up by an annoyed parent saying, Jaden, get up! It's time for school! What are you doing? Begrudgingly get up, shower, frantically look for something I deemed acceptable to wear, eat breakfast as fast as I could, pack up all my books in my bag, and check to make sure I didn't forget anything, have a one-minute freakout because I was late, go to school, try to get through the first minutes of classes while trying to rub the sleep out of my eyes, work on schoolwork for the next three hours, sit in my teacher's room for lunch, I was a loser, because all my friends were in a different lunch period, worry about how much homework I had to get done, get through my last classes, and finally go home. But my day wasn't over yet. I would have to go to play rehearsal, voice lessons, some kind of training for my career. After training, it was my favorite time of the night. Homework time! If I was lucky, it'd take me about an hour and a half. If I wasn't, it'd take me about till midnight. I would be bouncing my anxiety. Through my day, I'd have an anxious thought. I'll get back to that later in the story. Then I go to bed, get up in the morning, and again, I repeat the cycle all over again. It was a nightmare. I know I'm making it sound like a pity party, and it's not the worst thing in the world I could have endured, of course. And I don't really want to come off as a negative person toward a room of strangers I'm talking to currently, but to a freshman, it was pretty bad. <laughs> One of my biggest nightmares was algebra. I hated that class. I mean, you can give me concert tickets. I would still run from that class like there was a ghost on my heels. My hate for it was the hate, parents hate it when their teenagers put boy bands all on the time on the radio. I hated it. My attempts at understanding algebra would usually result in me wanting to throw my math binder out the window of my high school room and run away to the circus. Today, that doesn't seem like such a bad idea. I didn't understand why I wasn't understanding things my classmates found really easy. And it didn't help that I was having issues with my teacher. I started to think it'd be easier to just fail. Along with algebra, another struggle of mine was managing my anxiety and depression. I've had anxiety disorder for six years, and sadly, it hasn't gone away yet. I developed depression this year, so I've had to learn to manage that as well. The kind of anxiety disorder I have is called general anxiety. Before I talk my, about my disorders, I want to say that these feelings or thoughts are just my own. Not everyone who deals with anxiety or depression feels or acts the same way I do. Everything I'm saying is from personal experience. An example of my anxiety is... I have anxious thoughts that pop into my head randomly, like I can be eating, I can be talking, I can be reading, it doesn't matter what. But suddenly I'll have an anxious thought pop into my head. Oh no. It could be something like, I'm worried I'll fail this test, or one of the more common ones is, I'm worried a parent will die today, or I'm worried I'm going to get sick. It doesn't have to do with anything important. It just goes along with how my brain works. I worry about a lot of things, but one of the biggest things I worried about this year was my acting career. One day, I was having anxiety because my career wasn't going as I wanted it to. I was worrying of whether I'd make it in the business, or win an Oscar, or just do what I wanted in my life. And I decided to go online. One of the worst things I could have done. 
I went on Yahoo Answers. Again, I wasn't the smartest teenager. Um, I went on Yahoo, and I was looking at ways to get into the industry, how to contact an agent, something or other. And when I looked this up, I saw posts about how even extremely talented actors weren't making it, or how only 32% of applicants get into Boston University. I was freaking out. I was like, oh my god, I'm not going to make it. What am I doing with my life? Like, ooh. Looking at all my goals, I thought I was an idiot. They seemed unreachable. I felt like no matter how hard I worked, I would never have a chance at having a career doing what I loved. This triggered my anxiety, and I started to freak out. My heart started racing a million miles an hour, and I could feel it jittering. That made me think I had a heart attack. I don't need to worry about two things at once. I need to focus on my worrying, which is probably the worst thing ever. I started to breathe fast, which doesn't help when you're trying to not have an anxiety attack, one of the worst things. I'm not a very smart person. The words on the computer were engraved in my mind. I couldn't get them out. Even if I looked away from the screen, it'd be still engraved in my mind. I would think these words determine whether I could actually do what I wanted in my life. I was so worried about what would happen if I didn't make it into the acting industry. I started to become more stressed and on edge at school and with my parents and with my friends. It was going to reach the climax of the worst spring ever. One day, after all these things had happened, after the algebra issues, after my anxiety with my career, I had a breakdown. Again, the climax of the worst spring of my life. I had a breakdown in my room at about four in the afternoon. I was in my bed just reading, and then suddenly I realized how bad this really all was. I started crying and rambling to myself about how I hated my life, and I thought I was going nowhere. Rambling to myself made, my, made me think I was a lunatic. I probably was in that moment. I felt frustrated, underappreciated, and depressed. I remember I couldn't stop crying, and my mom kept knocking on my door asking if I was okay. Truth to be told, I wasn't okay. I wanted to quit. I wanted to stop doing what I loved, even though I knew it would break my heart if I gave up. I was mad at myself and at life. One big thing I remember thinking is, if I'm not meant to be an actress, what is my purpose? Why am I here? Acting, it's pretty much my life. I know lots of acting geeks say this, but for me, it was. It was my drive. It made me get up in the morning. Everyone has a love in life, and that was mine. I thought if I never became an actor, I would have no drive in life, and I'd be sitting at home watching reruns on MTV and thinking about what could have been. Why, I thought, why would I be here in Massachusetts, surrounded by some of the best acting teachers and training I could ask for if I wasn't meant to act? Why would I be here if I was meant to do something else with my life, like be a chef in New York or be America's Next Top Model? Why is I here? I wanted to know where my life was going to lead me. I wanted, to, wanted it to be like a game of life, where I could choose the safe or risky path if I wanted a $200 payday or where my paths would lead me. Sadly, that's not possible. Back then, I thought my life was over. I felt like I'd hit a dead end, like a car stuck in the snow. The car wants to go on, but the snow prohibits it, and it can't. But now, I realize I wasn't as stuck as I thought. A month or two after the breakdown and all the craziness of the school year had happened, 
I was still worried about my career. I thought public school was taking up too much time and I should be homeschooled or go to L.A. or something. I was talking to my mom about it, and she thought it was crazy. I don't blame her. It sounded kind of stupid. I wanted to talk to someone who knew about the industry and who could give me advice. So I decided to talk to my voice teacher, Martha. After I told her about my worries and crazy ideas about L.A., she looked at me in the eye and she said some, one of the biggest things. It was a small word, but to me, it made all the difference. She looked at me and she said, Jaden, what are you thinking? You'll be okay. And after she said that, I thought, you know what? I will. I realized I had to stop worrying about what would happen, things I couldn't control in my life. And I realized I had spent so much time worrying when I could have been having fun with my best friend, who, by the way, is here tonight. Thanks, Kelsey. And I could have, I could have just been happier. I was so depressed, and I felt like it wasn't something I can control. But I realized now I can control what I do, and I can control how I feel. And I realized I should just let go and enjoy my life, even if it doesn't take me on the path I want it to. I don't know if I'll make it in the acting industry or if I'll get into my top choice for college, but I know that I'll be okay. Thank you. Thanks, Jaden. I'm sure you will be okay. Thank you. <laughs> and remember, there's always puppetry. No, that's just my personal... <laughs> odd suggestion of a, a career. Um, John Lovering is coming up next. He lives in Dover, but spends most of his time at this radio station, this yeah. very radio station, <laughs> especially in the last couple of three months. After working in the education field for 36 years as a biology and media production teacher, John is now happily retired. Well, sort of. <laughs> He's been volunteering here at WSCA since September 2004 as the host of Audio Theater, a program that airs each Tuesday night at this time when we're not airing. And since January 2014, he has been the producer of this very show, True Tales Radio. His story tonight describes how a group of volunteers have organized and taken on the many ro roles required to build and to continually improve a nonprofit community radio station. <laughs> and how they've kept it operating now for 11 years. Its title is A Story Without an End. We hope. <laughs> well, that's what she thought I was going to tell. <laughs> Changed my mind. No, um, no, no, that's, no, no I'm, just, I'm, just kid, I'm just kidding you. Um, first of all, Jaden, wonderful job. Very excellent. Fantastic. She's our youngest person to be on the show, and we encourage more people, the more younger, more younger, young people to be on the show. Yes, Elvio, your friend next to you, and maybe she'll do it too. Okay, that's good. Okay, well, I'm going to begin with this. Um, did you see the article in the Herald about the low-power FM station that was going to start in Portsmouth? Those words were spoken to my wife one Sunday afternoon in October of 2003. I kind of opened the door to an adventure that continues to this very day. Uh, my role, is, as Pat mentioned, as a secondary school teacher was going to come to an end in uh, 2004. 
And uh, I decided I would like to retire and do something that I always wanted to do, and that was be involved in a radio station. When I was in high school, I had applied to Emerson College to be a, uh, a radio on a radio show or do television or something. Uh, and my father said, now this was back in like 1963, so we're talking a long time ago. And my father said, we lived on a farm, and he said, you'll never make anything of yourself doing that. And I'm not going to, you know, there's no way am I going to send you to that place. We're just not going to do that. We didn't have the money. And they didn't have the grants and the scholarships that they have now. So I didn't go. Uh, so I decided to get into a very lucrative career, teaching. <laughs> <clears throat> I actually majored in medical technology uh, at the University of New Hampshire until my junior year. And then I decided to uh, get involved in education, teaching biology. But I, I had worked in medical technology and got to do a lot of creative things with uh, bacteria and all that type of stuff and got a little nervous when somebody squirted diphtheria on my arm and I thought, well, maybe I don't want to do something a little safer than this. Well, anyway, um, when the retirement came, uh, the working at the radio station sounded pretty good. So I emailed Tim Stone, who was one of the founding uh, fathers here of the station, and I signed up to be on the engineering planning committee. That was in 2003. That was my first role. And uh, I had been restoring old radios for about 10 years at that time. I was an uh, extra-class amateur radio operator. And I, my wife and I had volunteered 11 years with the disaster services for the American Red Cross. And we figured, well, a nonprofit new radio station starting in Portsmouth could well be a disaster. <laughs> and uh, I thought maybe I knew how to handle help out, you know. Uh, actually got involved with delivering a child during a disaster thing one time, and I figured, well, if anybody has a baby while I'm in the studio, I'll be all, whoops, there I go, bumped it. Sorry about that at home. I uh, got excited about the baby thing. There's <laughs> nothing like it really was that day. Okay, well, in August of 2004, uh, of course, Tim said he would be very happy to have me on the committee, and uh, I didn't know him, I didn't know any of the people, and we had a lot of meetings in the months, almost a year prior to the station opening. Uh, many of them were at uh, different pubs, and we actually did a lot of work. And there was a lot of tension at times over trying to decide what equipment we would like and what equipment we could afford and where we were going to go, what buildings, trying to find places in Portsmouth. The, the rents are very expensive. And so we got into, uh, you know, a few arguments at times. And I wanted to, I remember one time the role of uh, Tim was to try to organize everybody and get everything laid out for the plan to open the station in September. And he called a meeting one time in January. And uh, uh, I was still teaching at this time. So I, I came over here from Hampton at that point. I lived in Hampton. And I came over here, and it was a cold, rainy night, and it was freezing rain when I got to Portsmouth, and the streets were a glare of ice, and I parked down by Marcy Street. I came up the sidewalk. I was literally holding on to the, to the uh, parking meters and any pole I could because it was all uphill, and I was sliding all over the place, and I got to the brewery uh, that, where they, we were going to have the meeting, and it was all kind of dark in there, and I went up the stairs, and the guy said, where do you think you're going? And I said, I'm going up to the WSCA meeting. No, they canceled that. Oh. I said, really? He says, yeah. And I said, okay. So that's the kind of, you know, it was up and down. Anyway, in August of 2004, Tim called me and said, uh, I need some help. And I said, what? He said, uh, we found a place, this place. And he said, um, I need some help cleaning it up. He said, this is going to sound a little weird. I need you here there about 9 o'clock at night because that's when the place is going to be vacated and we've got to get it cleaned up. So I had to sneak out the house with a vacuum cleaner. 
Now, my wife thought I was having an affair because going out of the house with a vacuum cleaner was a way to win a woman's heart. Going to her house and offering to vacuum her home would be because I didn't vacuum our home. So, no, but I came over here. Tim and, I, Tim and myself were the only two people here, and we worked about three hours, and the place was a total mess. Ceiling tiles were falling down. The rug was all ripped and torn, and we kept getting the threads caught in the vacuum cleaners. There was sawdust everywhere, paper everywhere, and we got everything as cleaned up as we could. Uh, and the, the carpeting was torn and tatted. We taped it down with duct tape, and that is pretty much the way the place looked for from 2004 right up to 2000, about six, seven, eight, kept right on. We just kept adding more duct tape. More <laughs> tiles fell down. Well, we had several visits during that first few years uh, from the local squirrel committee, um, jumping from ceiling tile to ceiling tile that we had up here. They were, they were styrofoam tiles, and the weight of a, a squirrel bounced on the middle of them, they'd break. And I'll never forget the day when I was in that room right there working on the emergency alert system. And one, that was one of my roles that I took at the station to uh, try to keep us legal every time the little, eh, 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 if this had been a real emergency, you know, you've all heard that. Uh, I'm the guy that makes sure that that happens here. And if it doesn't, then the FCC contacts us and we get into trouble. So I tried to take on that role. And I was in there trying to uh, figure out how I was supposed to do it. And I heard... I heard there was a man named uh, Doug Simmons. Doug, if you're listening, you'll remember this well. Um, but he was in the studio broadcasting, which we used to be right there. And all of a sudden, I heard this screaming and yelling in the studio, squirrel, squirrel, squirrel. And, 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 uh, and a squirrel had jumped on the ceiling tower right over the console while he was on the air. It broke, and the squirrel was running around. Whoops, I'm doing it again. The squirrel was running around on the console in front of him, and he had locked the door, and he, and he, got, he couldn't get out of the room, and he, he was, the chairs were falling, and the squirrel was upset too. I mean, <laughs> and, and uh, finally the door opened up, the squirrel ran across the floor, and we never saw that squirrel again. I think he's probably telling a story about that right now. Um, but uh, that was one of it. That was one of the things that would happen. And uh, so from that point, uh, that DJ, every time he did the show, he kind of kept yeah. as he was talking, looking up at those broken, broken tiles. We did have a bit of a makeover six years ago when the entire space was repainted with a decora uh, donated paint colors. We had some pretty pinks and some uh, turquoise blue and orange and uh, what else? Red, green. Uh, and people kept coming in and ordering margaritas. <laughs> and we... You know, we said, this is a radio station. They said, we thought it was a Mexican restaurant, and it, it looked that color, and, and it's been that way uh, for quite a while. Um, but in 2008, we received some grant money to build that studio over there, uh, which was Control-A, for those of you at home. It's where we do most of our broadcasting. And we got some grant, matching grant money, and that was the first thing we had really done since we moved in here in August of 2004. Let's jump ahead to 2012 and 13. Under the leadership of our volunteer uh, chairman of the board, uh, Rick Pickford, and our all-volunteer board members, they decided it was time to plan uh, to make WSCA look and feel a whole lot more welcoming and professional, a.k.a. neat and clean, uh, so that we could encourage more community members uh, to come into the station, participate in programming, and enjoy the shows. Uh, we, of course, also hoped there was a, it was a two-sided, you know, coin there. We were also hoping that we would get more um, memberships and programming uh, 
underwriting and that, that type of thing because that's what we survive on. Uh, we don't get any, any federal or state funding. It's very important that that plan uh, to improve the station also included um, including a, making our signal a lot better. And uh, that was a two-year process. Uh, I was involved with that, with, uh, with Rick and an engineer from out in New Mexico, I think he was. But we had all sorts of, if you've ever done anything with the federal government, it's a nightmare. And it was filing one paper after another, after another, after another, rejection, file again, rejection, file again, 30 days, that, that kind of thing. And it went on for two years. And finally, we got approval to move our antenna from the top of the music hall, where it has been since 2004, and we deeply thank those folks for uh, giving us a place to be all these years, to uh, the top of a, an 80-foot tower at the Peace Trade Port. Now, the tower is all assembled, but it's not up yet because we haven't got the final permission to actually raise it in the location that we would like to put it. Um, the tower sections, if while they went up, a lot of people pinched their fingers. We, got, we had people working there all day long. People come as volunteers. Somebody has to coordinate that. That's the managing role. Uh, that A lot of that was done by Rick, but also all the stuff we, people that are here see, all the ceilings, the painting, all that was been coordinated by Sean Henderson, who was the host of Stay Tuned, and he took on that, that huge amount of work, doing much of the construction work himself, actually, and organizing volunteers to aid in everything from replacing the ceilings, uh, new wiring, enlarging rooms, uh, setting up shelving, ripping up carpeting, insulating, packing up and organizing thousands of vinyl CDs and albums, which you, you see piled up in boxes around us here. There's still quite a bit to do. I want to thank John Walker also, who was a young man who came in here, and he actually alphabetized and cataloged all those albums, thousands of them. Um, so again, it's been an amazing level of volunteerism. Painting, painting, and more painting. Every wall you see here has been painted three times uh, to get the get those pretty colors hidden <laughs> as I was telling you about. Um, a couple of significant changes taking place include a doubling of the size of our broadcast booth over here, uh, a new pre-production room in the back where we, uh, DJs are going to be able to go in and do interviews or edit segments for their shows. It used to be a room we just stored records in. Those are all going to be in our uh, main studio. They're going to be on shelves, and the albums will serve two purposes. One, they'll be easy to reach, but secondly, they also absorb sound. It's going to make a really nice ambient sound in there with all those albums around. At least that's what we believe. So we've had some significant changes taking place. Our emergency alert system, uh, thanks to Steve Diamond, we have a new antenna up on the roof, uh, which is good because we're able to pick up the signals much better and be in compliance with the FCC. We have a new fiber optics link to our transmitter and a new internet server. That's all speeded up everything for us. Uh, we now have a redesigned website. We have a presence on Facebook, and True Tales Radio is on there. Audio Theater is. The station is. All these things have happened in the last uh, year and a half or two. All volunteer. We're standing right now on a 12 by 8 foot stage that's uh, a stage area that's uh, up about 11 inches or so off the floor. Uh, we're going to have lights and a speaker system connected to our control rooms, curtains hung in the area to, to uh, help the uh, sound system and all that type of thing. And we expect to have a lot of live performances here, bands as well as people, uh, talks, maybe um, some sort of, like for Don't Dismiability, I, I engineer that show and we hope to bring that in. And uh, True Tales, 
radio, of course, is our keystone here in doing this. But we're also going to introduce audio theater, and we're going to start doing live audio theater performances here on the stage. We invite you, and we're going to invite the audiences in Portsmouth and Kittery and all our surrounding Seacoast area friends. And we're going to say, if you'd like to be in a play, come on down. And some nights we're going to have a night where we're just going to hand you a script when you come in, and you're going to get to come up here and do it live for the first time. And we'll do the sound effects for you, but you're going to have to read the scripts. We thought, how many of you would like to do something like that? Okay, I count one. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, um, but we're gonna, so we're going to have some fun. We, that's what we want to make that. Uh, these renovations allow us to be welcoming and more inclusive. And speaking of inclusive, um, when our raised stage was constructed, one of the first things that was discussed was that it's a little bit high, and some people aren't going to be able to step up there easily, uh, depending on if they have certain disabilities. And then you have people that are wheelchair-bound. And I've been an engineering don't diss my ability for uh, uh, seven years, and I've seen a lot of folks who are in wheelchairs. And I myself was paraplegic for 14 months back in... Uh, 1983, I had spinal cord cancer, and uh, I had a 1 in 10 chance of ever walking again and a 30% chance of being alive, and here I am, 30, 32 years later. Uh, but I know what it is to be in that situation, so we've got a ramp that we bought. It's a portable ramp that will be able to be put off the side of the stage so that we can make it accessible to anybody in a wheelchair. I felt that that was very important to have access to everybody in the community as part of our station. So all of the work done here has been coordinated by volunteers and done by volunteers and by, by many of you just coming here. You're, you're helping us, helping us make the station what we want it to be. Um, I just want to say that um, we all do it because we believe, and Jan in his underwriting said how we all feel, we believe in the value of an independent radio station. So much of it today that you hear on the air is corporately sponsored, and they're told what to play on the air, what to do. They control their programming. We don't have that, and that's why we have all different kinds of programs. We consider our programs to be, um, our programming schedule to be sort of like a restaurant. You can go into a restaurant and you pick out the meals you like, and those that you don't, you don't order. Well, it's the same with our programming. There'll be programs that you don't like uh, because they just don't, you know, it isn't the same format all day. So you may not be into metal music or storytelling or audio theater or whatever it is. You may not like that, but you may like country western or you may like uh, old time rock and roll. And we have those too. So you pick and choose what you like. And that's what's great about community radio. So unlike most stories at this point in time, uh, we are trying to reflect the community that we serve, and that's part of our mission statement. And unlike most stories, we don't have an end yet, uh, and that's because we continue to have the community support with memberships and underwriting, and why we have the support, I think, is because what Jan said, other people also believe in the value of having an independent radio station, especially in this world today when everything is so impersonal. It's kind of nice to have something that's community-oriented, and we think that's good. So that's our story without an end, we hope. Thank you. Well, that was great to get an update from John. I know a lot of people have heard little bits of what's been going on here, renovations, new towers, 
So now you have a bit of the story, a bit more of the story to understand what we've been doing. So I want to thank all of tonight's wonderful storytellers for coming up and sharing parts of their lives with us. And I want to thank you and tell you it really was so wonderful to have our studio audience back. Give yourselves a hand. Yeah. I don't know, did the storytellers agree with me? It really makes it a better experience to have people here you're sharing with. Yeah, nods. I'm seeing nods. You all can't in the radio, but great. So I want to tell you about a few things coming up. First of all, True Tales Radio will be back on September 29th. Our theme that night is Seeking Justice and Stepping Up.